June 19, 2016, so as stated. What I'd like to do this morning is uh, to put together um, and put some sort of uh, cohesion to all the learning this year we've done in the Moreh. And uh, how would I do that? We had lots of varied and disparate topics. I'm not going to be able to put them all together, but I think uh, four of the main ones I'll be able to actually put together under one heading and be able to you know, present something that's very interesting, especially in light of the fact that we already know about these other sources and concepts. So it begins with the discussion, the age-old discussion, of whether philosophy is compatible with Torah. In other words, a Torah is a book which tells me basically what to think and how to act. Philosophy is generally conceived of as having its own way of thinking, and uh, it gives a lot more openness to thought. So is there a compatibility? Should there be a, a person who believes in Torah, who accepts Torah, and at the same time is a philosopher? So, you know, it's, again, it's an age-old conversation and discussion and debate, and it will be. But the, uh, the springboard for it that I'd like to use is from this book, Persecution and the Art of Writing. That's, that's this book. It's written by Leo Strauss. We've talked about him once or twice this year. He was a, a professor in the University of Chicago. I think he was originally from German, Germany, excuse me, and... Uh, well, he's got a lot of interesting opinions when it comes to Harambam specifically. Um, we'll, we'll touch on one or two of them. We've touched on one or two of them in the past. Uh, by and large, we've been opposed to them, if you recall. We've, uh, we've often disproved, um, or at the very least, argued with Strauss. But at the very least, he writes here in the beginning of his book, Persecution and the Art of Writing. This is the end of his introduction. He says, Spinoza bluntly said that the Jews despise philosophy. Baruch Spinoza, of course, is one of these well-known heretics uh, of the Jewish nation. And so he says, we despise philosophy. As late as 1765, Moses Mendelssohn felt it necessary to apologize for recommending the study of logic and to show why the prohibition against the reading of extraneous or profane books does not apply to works on logic. Because it was apologetic. How could we be approaching matters of philosophy? The issue of traditional Judaism versus philosophy is identical with the issue of Jerusalem versus Athens. This is Strauss's go-to phrase. He talks about Harambam as being uh, torn between Athens, which again will be representative of Aristotle and Plato and all that sort of stuff, and Socrates. And then on the other end is Jerusalem, in other words, is Torah. So that's, he's just giving it words over here. It says, it is difficult not to see the connection between the depreciation of the primary object of philosophy, the heavens and the heavenly bodies, in the first chapters, chapters of Genesis, the prohibition against eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the second chapter, the divine name, the admonition that the law is not in heaven nor beyond the sea, the saying of the prophet Micah about what the Lord requires of man, and such Talmudic utterances as these for him who reflects about four things, about what is above, what is below, what is before, and what is behind. It would be better for him not to come into the world, and God owns nothing in his world except for the four cubits of halakha. What he brings is a whole slew of proofs that traditional Judaism has been approved, uh, opposed excuse me, to this philosophical thought. I mean, amongst these you know, just simple uh, examples that he gives, I'd like to pick out three. So firstly, he says, Bereshit, uh, in the first chapters, talks about Adam eating from Isadat. So he says, ostensibly, if you just look at that with, with, uh, without knowing much, without studying it all that carefully, he says, what that is, is the Torah telling you not to wonder all that much, not to wonder in your mind too much, not to uh, wander after thoughts which maybe you shouldn't be thinking about, and you have to keep yourself contained and confined within your thought process of Torah. 
This is, that's, that runs counter to the concept of philosophy. Secondly, that what I'd like to focus on just briefly again is this concept of Moshe Rabbeinu was told by Akadosh Baruch Hu when he says, I'm going to go, I'm sending you down to speak to Bnei Israel and says, who should I say sent me? And he tells him, Eheyeh Asher Eheyeh. Tell him that's, that's who sent you. And so says, says Strauss, he says, that's a pretty, uh, pretty uh, cryptic statement. And he, his argument is, quite simply, purposefully so. In other words, the concept of the Torah is don't delve too much into the understanding of who I am. I am, and don't go further. Go I think that's the opposite. I would think saying yeah is is something that, to think about. But again, Moshe says, God, how should I describe you? And his response is, I am. In other words, you're, you're now looking at it kind of as a mandate, but this is Moshe asking for... Haram Pam will have a similar approach to you. But Strauss says, I mean, you certainly could approach it in this fashion. In other words, someone asks God, who are you? And he says, I am. So is it necessarily opening the doors or is it saying, back off? So, you know, you're taking what Haram Pam's approach basically will be, uh, that this is more descriptive than you think. And lastly, he has these two memrot from the Chachamim about, you know, you're not supposed to be thinking about specific things, what's above, what's below, what's behind, what's forward, and define it accordingly, but very simply, it speaks about history, it speaks about philosophy, it speaks about metaphysics. The Chachamim are against that. The only thing that God owns in this world is we're interested in action, we're interested in law, not interested in this philosophy. So each one of those three issues, again, it's a da'at, number two, eheyeh, asher eheyeh, number three, these memnot hachamim, probably the other ones as well, if you search a little bit harder, Haram Bam deals with. The first one, we dealt with this year ourselves, I mean, it was the first issue we dealt with, and that is Haram Bam in the Moreh, in Perik Beit, in the very beginning of the book, so, you know, we, we read it at, at great length, but we'll just read the key lines right now to understand how Haram Bam responds to that. He says, He says that we got a perfect intellect. Man had perfect intellect before his rebellion and, quote, is eating from that Eretz And it was about first Adam that it was said he was made by Selim Elohim, in other words, with the perfect intellect. And since he had that perfect intellect, that's how he was susceptible to hearing God and having this dialogue with God. Because after all, Kadosh Baruch Hu isn't speaking and isn't opening a conversation with animals and with people who don't have proper intellect. Because with proper and imperfect intellect, we're able to distinguish between truth and falsity. That's And that's what man initially had in its most pristine and perfect state. What the Nahash said about the Isadat was that now you'll be able to know the difference between Tov and Ra, good and bad. That's not truth and falsity. That has to do with conventional uh, intellect. In other words, it has to do with what people think about it. It has to do with what society dictates about it. We don't say that the, the, the world being round is good. And it being flat is bad. We say that's emet and sheker. It means that proper intellect is black and white, truth and false. 
He says, when you, in, when you include societal, conventional wisdom into our thought system, you're tarnishing that perfect intellect and taking it away from man. And that's what we got as a result of eating from Esadat. If you recall, the Perik began, as a matter of fact, by Bam citing from someone who asked. He said, how could it be that you ate from this Esadat, which you were told not to, and you got rewarded? Bam's answer, quite simply, is you didn't. Now let's just put this in context of Strauss's argument over here. Strauss's argument is the Torah is opposed to philosophy. Eating from Isadat, that was negative. In other words, don't expand your intellect. Whereas Harambam will argue and does argue, it's quite the opposite. It was the intellect was perfect initially. We just were able to see everything perfectly and, and, and as true and false. By eating from it, by going against that mandate, we were corrupting our intellect. We were corrupting our mind, and in so doing, you know, that's, that's the history of mankind. But in short, that argument of Strauss, that the Torah is against philosophy, and you see from the beginning, Harambam would have nothing of it, and you know, any true Maimonidean would have nothing of it. What about this uh, statement from Ehiyeh, Asher Ehiyeh? So Harambam talks about this elsewhere in the Moreh, and that's in Chilek Aleph, Perik Samech Gimal. And Harambam's basic argument, we'll read it somewhat quickly as well, Harambam's basic argument is, um, he says, and says, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu revealed himself to Moshe, and he told him, go call, call the Bnei Israel and bring them this message. Amar Moshe turned to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and he said, they're going to ask me to prove your existence and then I'll tell them that he's the one who sent me and now Harambam digresses for a moment but it's very important I don't know Perat, it should say. Perat liyachidim lo altal libam misyut Hashem. He says at that time period, except for individuals, and this Harambam, uh, you know, reiterates and makes much clearer in Hilchot Avodah Zarah and Perik Aleph in Mishnei Torah. But he says most people were of the Avodah Zarah. They didn't have proper conception of oneness of God and the existence of God. They weren't able to conceive of, of, uh, of, of matters outside of this world. Their intellect was not perfected. And now this is important. Therefore, I don't know, something. It should say, as le Moshe, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, so the, the statement over here is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu turns to Moshe and he says to him, and therefore, since they're not really going to understand this, since they're in a completely different thought system, tell them, asher But what does that even mean? min refers to I was or is or am and it refers to existence. refers to something in the in the present. It says and there's this Arabic word and, and the word can is identical. Harambam is getting into the dictuk of the matter, but he's basically arguing that is a somewhat redundant phrase. It's a phrase which means In other words, the statement of Akadosh Baruch Hu is I will be identified by 
existence. In other words, the statement quite simply was, you're looking for me to explain to you where he exists or how he fits into existence. I am separate from existence. Eheye. I, 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 so that, that's what, uki'ilu. What's that? It's, it's all in one. No? It's all. It's all. It's existence. That's what he's saying. Can. Yeah, it's is, existence. Don't you think it's interesting that uh, are we supposed to relate to him in terms of time? Because he, he's, he's, he's describing himself. That's the point. Was, but is, that, and will be. Right? But the point is that statement means I exist outside of time. I exist outside of existence. Well, you guys want me. That's Arambam's point over here. Okay, Baruch right, who's sending our relationship Moshe. to him is how we connect to time. No, so, Understood, so. but in other words, but uh, again, in other words, but if you want to understand him, right? Uh, so uh, I, this is how I would respond. In other words, Bob says you want to understand him. You have a completely skewed understanding of how 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 existence works. First things first is to state I exist outside of time and existence. Right. Uh, we can then talk about how you relate to me. Right, right. But uh, that's what Adam Bob says, and that's that's what he goes on. In other words, so uh, to bring it back to Strauss's argument, Strauss says, "Well, oh, God says to Moshe, so Rabbi, like Adam Bam says, well, that that's just an opening. That's just an invitation to understand more. In fact, that's how Adam Bam uh, concludes over here. He says, and if you want, and Adam Bam says, I will, and then I'll prove to you my existence, or Moshe will prove the existence, or Adam Bam will prove the existence as he understands the proving of existence of Akadosh Baruch Hu. No, the statement over here more than anything is." is a preliminary statement. It's a statement to a nation who's far from understanding. And secondly, it's an invitation to understanding more. It's quite the opposite of what Strauss is arguing, at least in the eyes of Harambam. And what about the last argument of Harambam, and uh, excuse me, of Strauss, and that is that these memrot of the hachamim seem to be telling us, you know, confine, structure, close off your thought, don't be thinking all that much. So Arambam has a whole Perik discussing this in Perik Lamid Bet here in Chelek Alev, and he goes through all that. Hmm? Social political work he was living at the time in the rabbis was more rabbinical, you know, say, than Torah in terms of closing, because you can, you can relate to what he's saying. Certain rabbis or people you talk to, why are you asking the question, don't ask. Yes. And, and, and to be honest, even as a statement in the Mishnayot around, whoever asks why there's God or why right, we right, exist, right. is cursed. So that there is some truth to what he's saying. So Haram Bam will argue not that way. I mean, I hear what you're saying. Haram Bam, doesn't, Haram Bam will not accept, and this, this differs from you, which is fine, he will not accept that any of the hachamim were closed to an open thought like that. I, I, could be, could be, but he, you know, he, he respected Hakamim more than you and me, apparently. You know, that's, uh, he says, And again, I, I started with an ellipsis. And I was, uh, he, he, had just, he had just cited them. He says, Don't think that what they meant, it's not telling you to close your mind from everything that your mind is capable of, of, of attaining and understanding. And something else, whatever that word's supposed to say. In other words, what Haram Bam says over here is, is exactly Robin knows. He says, Look around, the people who want to pass off their understanding of how things work and their understanding of closing off our mind, they quote these Memrod Hachamim. That's never what it meant. What did it mean? He's describing all these corrupt people. He's 
He says the statement of the Chachamim in each one of these things is just to tell you don't overstretch where your mind is holding. In other words, if you are not at the state and, and, and step in your intellectual development where you could understand those sorts of concepts, so stay away from them. And there will be, perforce, at the end of your life, matters that you won't be able to comprehend. So don't be dabbling in them. Work, your, work within the confines of what you can understand. He goes through that well-known Midrash Hachamim, which talks about Elisha ben Abuya, who was nichnas lepardes and comes out a heretic, and says, Arambam, you want to know what that's referring to? That's referring to this exactly. Not that he couldn't be nichnas. Bi'akiva was nichnas b'shalom b'shalom. And again, Arambam's pardes refers to physics and metaphysics, as he makes clear elsewhere. But anyway, the point over here is, Arambam says, all these statements of Hachamim that you'll cite, you maybe even find statements of, of Nevi'im and Mishle and Kohelet and elsewhere that you shouldn't dabble. That's talking about beyond your capabilities. But it doesn't mean that you're not supposed to be working your way up. It doesn't mean that you're not supposed to have that open mind to a philosophical approach to the world and to understanding science and so on and so forth. So just the preliminary steps over here and quickly reading these words of Harambam is that any statement you'll make, I mean, how, however you know, society dictates it today or at a different generation, there could and, and there are pretty good arguments against each one of them. In other words, arguing for an openness on behalf of Torah to philosophy. Okay, so that being the case, I just I want to progress to the next point of Strauss, or a different point of Strauss. Now, Strauss's general message in, in his book is different than the two points we're making. His general message, this is what we refer to at a different point, is that, uh, or one of his general messages, the main one, he says is that Harambam was, uh, was torn between these worlds of Athens and Jerusalem. So Athens was the Aristotelian philosophical thought system, and that's represented by More Nebuchim, as he understood it. Whereas Mishneh Torah is, is the representative uh, of, of Jerusalem. Now, Mishneh Torah is dictating law, whereas, uh, whereas More Nebuchim is dictating thought. So which one's the supreme? Which one is the one we're supposed to give the most importance? Is, and this is his understanding, is, like Morene Vuchim's thought, as he understands it, that action is just to, to secure thought, or is action something that's uh, intrinsically you know, uh, uh, proper? And law is something that Harambam actually would look at as a virtue in it of itself. So he says that's a clash in works, and ultimately what he's arguing is that Moreh Nebuchim is written, and much of the works of Harambam are written in an esoteric fashion, which means instead of looking at him being able to read and understand exactly what he means, you have to read through the contradictions and find the contradictions, and then you get to his true intent. And his argument of Harambam's true intent, again, you know, this is foreign to us, but his argument of Harambam's true intent is that Athens was the ideal. And everything that he's presenting in Mishneh Torah is because of the persecution, hence the name of the book, the persecution that he would have been faced with. In other words, in order to set up a safeguard for himself to be able to preach to the elite, the truth, the truths as he saw them, he needed to set up a system in which he cultures himself, in which people are acting and following his words and think that he fits into the mainstream of, of Judaism and all that sort of stuff. Whereas at the same time, he'll tuck in through contradictions and through reading carefully his true, quote, seemingly heretical views, even though that's how he understood things really to be. 
So we've discussed this at great length at, at, at other uh, junctions, whereas uh, Isidore Tversky and others take him to task for this, and they point to a book like Mishneh Torah, which is this halacha book, and they say, you know, you're, you're missing out on the, fa- the fact that all of Sefer Hamada is philosophical. So if, in fact, that book is to feign this, you know, action, law-based system, so why is he talking about philosophy in that book? If that's for the masses, keep out the philosophy. I mean, what's, what's the purpose? And so on and so forth. It's, it's a discussion for another time. Anyway, another one of the things that he does over there, and this is just very briefly, he does this in four pages, but I, I actually, you know, I, I like this part of it. It says, the finding that the guide, he's referring to the Moreno Bukhim, is devoted to the explanation of the secret teachings of the Bible seems to be a truism. It says that at the end of the day, what Moreno Bukhim, and you see it from the beginning of the More, from the beginning of the More, what he's talking about is Pesukim in the Torah. I mean, to a certain extent, Harambam almost states that my objective in this book is to explain Pesukim in the Torah. He's trying to explain God's existence as it may have been skewed, but seeing it in the proper light in the Torah. So you're trying to see the truths that are, that are, that are uh, inherent but hidden in the Torah, yet it is preg- pregnant with the consequence that the guide is not a philo- philo- philosophic book. Maybe it should say philosophical book. No, his statement over here is that Moreno uh, Vuchim is not philosophical. What does he mean by that? Well, what he'll, what he'll describe in just one second is that philosophy, uh, at, ver- at the very least before, it, before you, you expand its definition in its most simple interpretation, at the very least in the time of Hanambam, was very much identified with Aristotle, with Greek, with Athens, and all that sort of stuff. So he says, well, if you approach Moreno Vuchim, he says, very much not that. Moreno Vuchim is not fully and completely in line with Aristotelian thought. So his argument, yes, it's just words. Is it a philosophical work or not? It's just words. But his argument will be that Moreno Vuchim is very different than what you might have thought it was. Yes? You can find philosophy back in Torah He's going to do it right now. Today, yeah, he, well, uh, I'm not, it'll, it'll take a long time to develop it fully, but he'll give us, at the ver- he'll give us very quickly, uh, I'll, I'll give you to read more on it, it's hard to define it today. It's yeah, very broad. That's his, well, his point. But listen to how he defines it. And again, I, I have no problem if I you disagree with this. For me, more than anything, I, because he's saying today it's more expansive, the term, whereas once expensive. it was much more confined. No, he's saying once upon a time it was much more confined. It was basically, at least in Haram Bam's eyes, it was Aristotelian, whereas today it will include Aristotel- a lot more. No, but Aristotel- the term. Aristotelian was huge. It was. That was, that was mass it, it was, but oh, you, hold, hold off on it for a second. I mean, it's a larger conversation, but the point over here, more than anything, in, in my mind, that's necessary. And again, and this is this is where I see our conclusion to the year is that Harambam will constantly and consistently turn to the philosophers, stare them in the eye, and say, "But the Torah says differently." And it might run a counter to my philosophical intuitions, but the Torah says differently. And we've seen it, if you've, if you've paid attention, throughout the year in the Moreh. But before that, he writes, the fact that we are inclined to call it a philosophic work is derived from the circumstance that we use the word philosophy in a rather broad sense. And if you read in between there, he gives several examples. He says, for Maimonides, who knew nothing of systems of philosophy and consequently nothing of the emancipation of sober science from those lofty systems, philosophy has a much narrower, narrower 
or a much more exact meaning than it, had, it has at the present time. It is not an exaggeration to say that for him, philosophy is practically identical with the teaching as well as the methods of Aristotle, the prince of the philosophers, and of the Aristotelians. And he is an adversary of philosophy thus understood until, and then he goes on to discuss this, and then he writes at the end, until we shall have rediscovered a body of terms which are flexible enough to fit Maimonides' thought, the safest course will be to limit the description of the guide to the statement that it is a book devoted to the explanation of the secret teachings of the Bible. He's not comfortable calling Morene Vuchim a philosophical work because, and this is, I, I think, again, words are not the issue, because he abides more to the Torah, or not more to the, to the Torah, above philosophy. It means that if Aristotle said something, and Harambam felt that the Torah ran counter to that. He wasn't going to take Aristotle and try to read it into the Torah. It means Harambam was going to take Torah over Aristotle in all situations. Yes, sir. Still taking, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, this paragraph kind of confuses me as to what this author's uh, Strauss's opinion yeah. really is. It sounds like he's saying, at least on the surface, in a simple way, philosophy is not so good if you, you know, in that definition. But then, oh, well, Ramam is not really philosophy, don't worry about it. Like, it's like, it's like trying to be apologetic towards... No, no, this is because like you're, you're of, assuming you know, like, that, you know, we're dealing with a rabbi with a black hat and a beard speaking here. This is a person no, no, who has I mean, no problem with, you know... I'm saying it's like, it's weird because it's, he's almost like you're trying to put Ramam in the middle. Like, it's almost like... In my mind, this is a put-down of Harambam. I mean, that's basically what he's yeah, doing. He's putting him down. But he's he's saying, saying he's not a real philosopher. But he's also, like, the reason I think that I said defensive is because he could easily have said, oh, and his book is philosophy, which would also be, either way, like a lose-lose. I gotcha. Okay, I mean, regardless. <laughs> again, his point over here, I think, we'll find throughout. And, you know, to give you several examples and then to give you one new one. But, but but, it's just a weak argument. Like saying because he's not going to be true to his intellect. It's like, it's like saying if some other philosopher says something, I will take it into consideration. If the Torah said it, I will take it into consideration. Which is basically saying that he doesn't believe there's a God and the whole thing is fake is based on that statement. But it would have been a very well-known philosopher and would rely on his knowledge, that would be okay. So I'll rephrase it. Um, and, and this, uh, in fact, is you know most of the detractors of Harambam throughout history have, have argued he just looked at Aristotle and read it into Hazal and read it into the Torah. That's their general argument, right? In other words, he just made this whole system up. The Torah, the Hakamim never meant this. So Strauss's argument, basically, as I understand it, is not, not so true. He would turn to Torah as he understood it and let it trump Aristotle at points. In other words, I, I'm, I'm rephrasing this. I'm putting it in my own words, and I'm saying that he was not Aristotelian and it has to fit into the Torah. It was Aristotelian when he thought it did fit into the Torah. What would be an example of the Torah following Aristotelian that was not like Chachamim is the question? I guess it would be an example of... Well, well, I mean, we can spend years on that. In other words, uh, we can can spend, you know, from here to tomorrow on these sorts of things. You know, it's one that's come up several times over the course of this year that Yehoshua says, Shemesh Begivon Dom V'yareach Be'emekayelon Chachamim accept that as being one of the greatest miracles ever. Arambam completely rationalizes it. And the reason he rationalizes is because of Aristotle's concept of the spheres never changing and them being constant. That's, uh, he, he states it, he states it matter-of-factly, that's why he's doing it. But, it, but it's not Aristotelian, that's, that's, that, but that's scientific, not philosophical. That would be like saying... No, no, but Rob, Robbie, the, the point over here is that if you're a Torah guy, you could argue, not, not could argue, might, might say you should argue, that there are miracles that are possible even in the celestial spheres. 
Whereas Harambam says, over there, interestingly enough, uh, Aristotle's system, and I have to work back and, and be able but to... The, but the question there is, he accepts miracles. Why? It's not because of Aristotle. There's a lot of miracles. It wasn't because Aristotle... Well, as a matter of fact, the reason he runs counter, and that's one of our sources, that's what we talked about, the reason he doesn't accept Aristotle's conception of Bidiah, of creation, is because of miracles. But at the end of the day, he does accept a certain certain aspect of him. So so on and so forth. There are many places, and it's not me. I mean, this is this is the classic cr- critics of Harambam say, you know, what you're doing is you're reading the Torah and the pr- and the Hachamim in the prism of Aristotle, who told you to different. do so. Uh, but to be to be fair, what was Aristotle in the time of Greece? It wasn't philosophy. I would say it was science. It was well, both. I mean, he had this. He, it was both. No, I mean, no, he, he was interested in everything. No, so. no, no, no. But by definition, philosophy was the love of knowledge. Well, Aristotle wrote the book of science in terms of taking animals and parts. His book was for 1,200 years, and he did it scientifically. That is he correct. More than 1,200 years. Well, yeah. He broke an egg three days. In six days, he broke another egg. Yeah, he, okay. he was very scientific. There wasn't a huge difference between, say, an abstract philosophical approach that we have today versus hard science. So what Obama was looking at is hard science to some extent. And I think he had a hard time. It would, it would, was this miracle? I don't, I, I don't. I don't. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll shift it, and I'll talk about ethics for a second. You know, ethics is, is certainly not hard science, and Aristotle has a whole book on ethics, right? And Al Farabi has his his own uh, adaptation of it, and Harambam has lots of difficulty, as we discussed on Shavuot, and maybe we'll discuss it briefly here today. Has a lot of difficulty of, of in taking the words of the philosophers on this matter and the words of the Chachamim on the same matter, and he, he feels forced to square the two with each other. But it's the same thing today. Forget about that. If I told you women are garbage and the way it's written, you wouldn't accept that today. It's philosophical or conventional I, I got you, but what I'm, what I'm telling you is he did accept the, the, what you would refer to as philosophical, and he felt it necessary to find it in Chachamim as well. Okay, separate conversation. Anyway, so here in source number six, Harambam in the Moreh, when he's talking about creation. So this was, I think, the second thing we did this year. So right, Harambam has Hashkafot B'nei assuming that you accept that there is a God in this world so he says when you're dealing with with uh, with ideas and theories as to how the world was created there are three basic opinions if you might recall we spent four or five weeks on this and he begins with the Torah we commented on why over here he starts with the Torah as opposed to elsewhere um, I was going to say go back and listen to the recordings, but I don't know if we recorded this. What's that? Just the last one. Just the last one, unfortunately. The world in its and the only existence was God and nothing else. There was nothing beside him. And he created ex nihilo, created from nothing else. So that's the first opinion. That's the opinion of the Torah. And now he's going to give us the opinions of Aristotle and Plato. Now, why doesn't he accept Aristotle and Plato? And the answer is, he makes quite clear to us, because Torah, Nisim, Nivuah, and so many other matters, as he writes later on in Pedic, whatever. And he says, none of those things would be possible had we not accepted creation ex nihilo. 
I mean, he has lots of difficulty even with Plato's approach. It says, It's impossible for God to create nothingness from, uh, excuse me, something from nothingness. Therefore, they think that there was eternal matter. And the form, God and matter coexisted eternally. And he goes on to explain it's like a person, it's like a person who's crafting and molding a clay into a statue. So to Akadosh Baruch Hu took eternal matter, which was eternal with him, because he couldn't have and cannot create that something from nothing, and he crafted that and gave it its form. That's Plato's approach. Lastly, what we learned about as well was Harambam's presentation of Aristotle. Time was eternal, the existence was eternal, form and matter were eternal. He takes away from the capabilities of God, this is Aristotle's approach to the matter. And uh, he, he, the only thing that he ex- he, he gives uh, says Amar ve'afal pishelo Amaro belashon ze aval hamusag be'ashkafato ki min animnal le'da'ato sheishtanei la'Hashem rason o yitchadesh lo'chefetz. It's impossible for God to exert a will or to create something. Shkola metziut azok kefishehi Hashem himtzio b'rasono avalope ona achar ha'eder. He says there was no there was nothing that came into existence from nothingness, not even not even form onto the matter. But in short, if you, if you just bring us back to the context of today and out of the context of then, what Haram Bam does over here is he gives the two basic and foremost philosophical approaches to creation and he rejects them on grounds of Torah. I mean, that's, that's his basic argument. Now, when he deals with Plato specifically, and that's creation of, of form or taking matter and giving it form, Harambam has some difficulty over there, if you recall. What Harambam says over there is he says, I technically speak, I could read into the Torah both approaches. He says, I, I could fit into the text of the Torah, even Plato's approach. And he quotes a Pekeder Bili Ezer, which seems to suggest Plato's approach of eternal matter and giving it form. And Bam says, the reason I'm not doing so is because if I would so do, I would be taking away capabilities from God and I would therefore run into problems in terms of prophecy, in terms of miracles. I would say God doesn't have the capability to alter nature because he couldn't create it in the first place. But ultimately... Again, this is a great example of, you know, coming back to Strauss's point, that Harambam defers to the Torah instead of to the philosophical approach. And source number seven, we saw it by Nivuah as well, we saw it by prophecy. What does that mean that he defers to the Torah? Of course, it's, it's through the lens of Torah. I think that without a doubt we can't argue that. It's not looking at the Torah independent. You have to accept the truth of the Torah if you're going to explain it. I gotcha. So what, what I... It's pashrut to you. It wasn't so pashrut to others. It still isn't pashrut to others as well. In other words, the concept again will be, instead of stretching, stretching verses in Torah, instead of bending over backwards, it's taking the Torah for what he understands it to be saying without imposing philosophical constructs and concepts onto it. And that's, that's what he's consistently doing, at least in the exoteric sense. But we argued in each one of these 
that this is his true, true argument in each one of them. That's what he does by Nevuah as well. Hashkafot b'nei Adam b'nevuah kashkafot to him b'kadmut ha'olam chidusha. Rambam says that there's lots of opinions, three opinions. Just like when it comes to creation of the world, so too in terms of prophecy. He says the first approach to the matter is the approach of most nations that believe in this concept known as prophecy. And many people who believe in the Torah believe this as well. And that is God at will decides I'm going to send this person and he'll be my prophet. Now the person needs to be imbued with a certain intellect. He has to have certain character traits. But ultimately, how did he get ordained for this prophecy because God chose him. That's the first approach to the, pro- to the, to the issue. The second approach, says Arambam, that's the philosophical approach, that's the Aristotelian approach, and that is you need to be perfected in intellect, in character traits, and so on and so forth in order to attain prophecy. How does prophecy then come? In a natural, uh, um, uh, organic fashion, you're now imbued with the ability to understand matters better. The last approach, which we spent most time on, is the approach of HaTorateno, says Harambam in the third paragraph over here, and that he says is very similar to the philosophical approach, and he reads it into Divrei Chachamim. However, it's different in one aspect, and that is that God could block it. Whereas for Aristotle, prophecy is something that's natural and it, it can't be blocked by any being or any entity because... It just comes once you're in that state. Torah says Harambam, based on Nevim, based on other sources, can't, says that Nivuah can be pro- blocked. Prophecy could be blocked. Again, he's looking at a philosophical approach, which maybe he could read into the Torah, but at the end of the day, he's deferring to his understanding of Pishu Toshel Mikra in the Torah. Yes? I'll go back a little bit. I just want to, for context, when he says that, because he, we're talking about all these different philosophical yeah. yeah. Schools of thought and stuff mm-hmm. that he's ta- that he's you know speaking about, um, but then Strauss specifically says that in his words that Rambam knows nothing of systems of philosophy. What is he talking about when he says systems of philosophy? Because he's not talking about Aristotle and Plato. Because no, he obviously he, knows about them. He, he's talking about more expansive, in, it just defining the word philosophy uh, in a more expansive um, fashion. It means opening up the definition to include being, in other words, you could then, if you, if you give definition to philosophy as being law systems such as the Torah, you could call that philosophy as well. Whereas he's, he's arguing for Haram Bam, it was much more confined. It has, had to do with Aristotelian concepts. That's, that's all he means by systems of philosophy. Okay, so he's not really, so what he's doing, is, is that just his way of, of defining what he's saying you shouldn't be thinking by saying not that stuff, but this, this later stuff you're just talking, that's the stuff philosophy that why Strauss doing that you're asking Strauss is why is it important to say he doesn't know why was why was Strauss uh, why does Strauss feel compelled to do that because he's trying to draw the contrast between Harambam and later philosophy later Jewish philosophers which is what he's saying is the bad thing He's not saying good or bad. He's saying you shouldn't learn that. No, no, no. Is he want Strauss? Strauss was all over this stuff. The first thing he said was Oh, no, 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 no. He's quote. He, what, you think he's going to be bound by the Torah's uh, opinion on this man? No, no, no. That's you, you, you're reading again. You're making Strauss a Rosh Hashiva here. No, <laughs> Strauss, 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 Strauss is speaking as a philosopher. That there is this. There's this well-known. If, if you probably, I imagine, if you Google Leo Strauss, 
you know, the Amcha, what everyone says about Leo Strauss is that he was a closet atheist. I mean, so, you know, they're not saying that about me and you, I don't think, you know. So uh, the point over here is that whether he was or wasn't, we have proofs that he wasn't. But at the end of the day, he's not trying to push the uh, religious view onto you over here. He's, he's speaking. He's speaking about Harambam. He's speaking about his... His, his interesting approach to Harambam. Anyway, last source over here, and source number eight, and it's another one, not last source on this page, and it's another one of these issues that we at great length also dedicated weeks to, and that was Hashkaha, that was divine providence. And Harambam, instead of having three approaches to this, he says at the beginning that there are five. And in the second paragraph, he says, Hashkafa Harishon. Now, the first approach, he devar mi shehashav she'en hashkaha kelal, beshum devar min advarim bechol hamesiyut azo, bezoi hashkafat apikores. He says the Epicurean approach to this matter is that there's no providence at all. It's basically uh, denying any involvement of God in the world in any way, shape, or form, maybe denying any existence of God. Hashkafa shinia, the second approach, he hashkafat mi shesovek, he mixat advarim yesh behem hashkaha vehem behanagat manhig. Second approach is that there are some matters that have uh, divine providence, and others are just chaotic, are just uh, just happenstance. And that's Aristotle's approach to the matter. Aristotle has in the upper worlds, above, outside of, of Earth, and so that that's where there's a providence, whereas in Earth there's not. It's quite the opposite of Aristotle's approach, the third approach, and that is that everything has God's intervention, and that he has the Asharia sect, this Arabic, this, excuse me, Islamic philosophical approach, and that one, you know, although many in the crowd and many, many in the nation, many in the nation love this one very much. Says Harambam is wrong as well. You know, he says it's Zaruyot. Says as a result of this, how do you deal with all the negative things that happen in this world? How do you deal with all the sicknesses to good people? How do you deal with? It's a shame David Salama's not here. How do you deal with the birth of that girl in Afghanistan? Uh, you know, what did she do wrong? But everything there's no there's no there's no mikre. So that's that third approach. The fourth approach, said Harambam, was that the Metazalla or Metuzella, and that's a, a different one of these uh, Islamic philosoph- philo- philosophical uh, um, um, uh, circles. And their approach to the matter is that really God is basically involved in all, but at the end of the day, man has the ability to make his own decisions. And uh, so he says uh, they run into all sorts of problems in terms of explaining that paradox. In other words, if God's involved and man has the same capability, and what's more, and what bothers Harambam even more than that, is that they ascribe uh, divine intervention and providence over animals and over nature, and that, that really makes him very uncomfortable. Just because mm-hmm. I don't remember specifically, the, the, for the sects that specifically say that everything else is controlled, do they also say that there's no free will, there is free will, I don't remember. No, so the, the third one, the, the Asharia, is, is arguing basically against free will. Okay. And that's what Harambam smashes them. Then the Metuzella, or Metuzulla, they argue that there is free will, but they have difficulty explaining how that works. So then the, four, the fifth approach, he says, is the Torah's approach, or at the very least, many Hachamim's approach, and Harambam describes that as being a situation in which man has a full uh, capability to make decisions. Uh, we'll, we'll read it inside the third line here in the second paragraph. We have freedom of choice. We don't need any intervention to make our own decisions. 
So two animals have the capability to do all on their own. And this was God's will. He wanted it to be that both animals and humans should have this freedom of choice. The last approach, says Arambam, is my own approach. It's really a sixth approach. He says, and I, I veer from the classic interpretation of the Torah, but he says, what's driving me to this? And that I put in bolds over here. He says, I'm not going to be able to prove my opinion. Rather, I'm reading Pesukim in Tanakh, and this is what's giving me my approach. And that's the most important line in all of this for me. In other words, Haram Bam again is saying, my approach cannot be proven better than the others. As a matter of fact, maybe the others have better proofs in terms of uh, logic, in terms of philosophy. My approach, he says, is basing itself on the Torah. probably say, as a result of mine, the truth is, many of the obscure, the obscure notions of the other approaches will be gone, will, will vanish. It's closer to a, a logical thinking. And that's his argument. His argument is that in, outside of this world, in the uh, celestial sphere, so Adam Bam has this Aristotelian notion that there is what's known as divine providence. In this world, the only divine providence is imbued to man. Animals, nature runs its course, and that's set into the DNA of the world. What does it mean that man has his uh, freedom, uh, ha- has this divine providence? Well, if you recall, we did several readings of Harambam from Gimal at the end and elsewhere. Basically, Harambam's definition of this word hashkahav, providence, has to do with intellect. It doesn't have to do with the intervention as you know, we sometimes uh, conceive of it or you know, the Little Miracles uh, series or any of that sort of stuff. None of that is, in Haram Bam's eyes, what Hashkaha is known as. Hashkaha has to do with our ability to tap into intellect and to be able to make careful and calculated and understandable decisions. That's Haram Bam's approach. So just in sum, what we've done over here before the last point, what we've done is, you know, we started with, is philosophy compatible with uh, Torah? And Haram Bam's argument is certainly. And all those Straussian arguments of that a priori approach to the Torah and it's against all these concepts, Harambam deals with one by one, I think in very coherent, very cogent fashions. I think he has very good arguments. I don't think he's apologetic in any of them. Although I guess Strauss would argue that he was, because Strauss knew the more much better than me. Then, then we went on to Strauss's second just point, and I, there are those who would argue with this, and there are those who do argue with this, but I, I think it's a pretty good point on this one, and that is that Harambam will turn to the Torah, and he'll say a Torah will trump the general philosophical notion. And he won't read it, or he won't be forced to read it. And you know, you might say these are the exceptions, but I think I think these are not the exceptions. These are proving these are proving his methodology, and that is that Torah, based on his simple understanding of it. Again, what drove him toward, at least in his explicit words, is Torah. It means that if you want to qualify him as a philosopher, define philosophy different than you know, that classical interpretation of it, or the way he will, or he will. It means that it's Torah as funneled through, or through the prism of Torah. The truth is, and we talked about this on Shavuot, Harambam doesn't do it in his other works very often, but he does it from time to time. He'll try to tell you how he squares, quote, the philosophical approach with the Torah approach. So there's, in Shemona Perakim, there's this article here by uh, Herbert Davidson. Herbert Davidson is a real, was a real, 
I'm not sure if he's still alive, a scholar when it comes to uh, reading the words of Harambam. He's got several very good books. Um, but beside the books, he has this article on Shimon Pirakim. So Shimon Pirakim, as we discussed on Shavuot, is Harambam's introduction to Pirkei Avot. And in his introduction to Pirkei Avot, as its name suggests, he's got eight chapters. And each one of those chapters, he says, I'm going to speak about a different fundamental that before you read Pirkei Avot and you just read about those simple words of the rabbis, you need to get the fundamentals down. So he gives you a lot of fundamentals. So one of them we discussed on, on is, is the fifth Perik. We discussed this on Shavuot night. And that is over there, he's dealing with a seeming contradiction between the words of uh, Hachamim and the words of the philosophers, that the philosophers argue for, um, in other words, the, the question he was uh, approaching, the qu- question he was uh, dealing with, was, uh, the, was whether uh, inborn goodness and virtue is... Is is, uh, is is greater in terms of value, in terms of uh, an axiological approach to the matter, than to uh, than to learn skills or to overcoming it constantly. In other words, when I approach a situation in which I'm tempted to do something that's unethical, so is it greater that I'm in that situation? I was tempted and I overcame it, or is it ideal to be? that that's part of me, that's innate, I'm not interested in it at all. And what Harambam had over there was that the philosophers argued that that struggle is negative, that's terrible, how did you even get that into your system to think about doing that, that's very negative, that's, that certainly it should be innate, that's greater, the Sadiq is greater than the Kovesh Yeser, whereas Harambam quotes several Memrot Chachamim, in which the Chachamim most notably argues as a person shouldn't say, I want to eat the pig, but uh, you know something, excuse me, you should and say, I'm, I'm disgusted by pig. You should rather say, wish I could eat the pig, but the Torah told me not to. Shouldn't say, I'm disgusted by sha'atnez. You should rather be saying, I, I wish I could wear sha'atnez, but if she, shikach gazra alai Torah. So wait a second, am I supposed to go through that internal struggle and end with the Torah's conception? Or am I supposed to have it innate? I know, I know. Harambam gives the answer as well. So Harambam basically boils it down to the difference in types of concepts we're dealing with. He says if we're dealing with something known as a mishpat, these are our words, not Harambam's words, you're dealing with something that's logical, we'll, we'll put ethics in that, in that category, we'll put miswot uh, that are understandable in that category. In those situations, it's supposed to be innate. Those situations, the internal struggle about something that's logical, that's negative. Whereas when it comes to concepts like hukim, like basar b'halav, like kashrut, according to Arambam, like sha'atnez, and so many other things, in those, you know, those aren't supposed to be part and parcel of you. Those, the struggle is what it's about. In other words, lefum sa'ara agra, the concept of overcoming it and giving in to God's will on that is in situations where it's hard to understand the reasoning. But beside all the details over there, what was he doing in this chapter? It's, it's very fascinating thing. He's bridging the gap between Jerusalem and Athens. He's saying the hachamim say X, the philosophers say Y. Now, what he can do is walk away and say, okay, I'm going to go with the hachamim. Instead, he says, I think we can join the two. And I don't think that will, will, will in any way hurt either one of these. We're not going to, as a result, say that the philosophers were, no, the philosophers were talking about that, and Torah was talking about that. And he's able to square the two. What happens when he can't square the two? What happens when, in his mind, philosophy runs counter to the Torah? Well, we saw examples in Moreh Nebuchim, that's what we were dealing with. Does he do that in, in, in other places as well? So one notable example is over here in the third Perik of Shemona Perakim. Now, if you just read it without the commentary of Davidson, you'll miss it. 
but we'll just read it, and then we'll give you the commentary of, of, of Davidson. So we've read it before in Hilchot De'ot. I, mean, I, I think we've read it together. But regardless, what Arambam is talking about over here is bad character traits. And he says, This is when you have a physical ailment or sickness. When a person knows that he's sick, you don't know how to cure yourself. You go to the doctor, and the doctor, as a result, and they'll tell them, this looks like it's good to eat, and it's exciting that you shouldn't be eating that. And they'll tell them to eat and drink things that seem disgusting because they tell them this is what's going to put you back on the proper path. Again, when you're sick physically, you go to a doctor and you listen to what the doctor tells you, even though it doesn't seem right to you, even though it doesn't taste right. You, you put your trust in him that he knows what he's doing is going to make. Ken So too, when you have soul issues, when you're sick in your soul, in other words, your character traits are, are, um, are corrupt. So he says the curers, the doctors of character traits, of soul deficiencies, are hachamim. And the Chachamim will be able to, in turn, give the proper approach to how to fix your character trait. And that's what he says in the Chotterot as well, very shortly. I don't know. So that's Saram Bam's statement. It seems very straightforward. So what Herbert Davidson points out is uh, he says, where's this mashal coming from? So you could say Harambam made it up. He says, as a matter of fact, it comes from an earlier source. It comes from this philosopher, which Harambam was very intent on reading and was very involved with, known as Al-Farabi. And he says, if you look in Al-Farabi, however, he says the metaphor is very different. It seems almost exactly the same, but there's one very important, very different point in the detail in this. So if you look in, on page 47 here, he, um, so that's, on, on, a, on one question in, in C, of moral philosophy, Maimonides does make a radical departure from his source. So what he's arguing, uh, Davidson, is in that two, uh, one of them we just stated, and another one uh, elsewhere, Harambam is trying to stay as consistent with the philosophers as he can. He says on one case, he departs away, parts ways from the philosopher. According to Al-Farabi, the director of human morals should be the statesman. This conception is expressed in the very plan and purpose of his book, which is a collection of of chapters or aphorisms for the use of the statesman in inculcating virtue among the inhabitants of the state. I would, you, can, you should and could read more of this, but basically what, he, what he's setting forth is, I mean, if anyone doesn't know about it, Plato uh, was, uh, one of the well-known things about Plato's philosophy was that Plato, his dream of the perfect world was one in which the philosopher was the king, or the king was the philosopher. In other words, politics was all controlled by philosophy. As a, it's uh, Karl Popper and others who attributed the, uh, you know, the, the, the fascist and all the... Um, What's the right word? Uh, Nazism and all that sort of stuff. Totalian, uh, totally, uh, totalitarian. totalitarianism, uh, governments, they traced back, to, I can't think of the word, it's up too early. They traced that all back to Plato because they said that was a situation in which the government was telling you how to think. 
Anyway, that's Plato's ideal conception of utopia. It's a world in which the uh, governments are being run by philosophers. And so he says Al-Farabi, interestingly enough, is, is consistent with that. His metaphor, when it comes to this metaphor over here, of who do you go to when you have these Hulein is you go to the governor who's also the philosopher. So he points out, Davidson, that Harambam brings up this same metaphor twice. And both times he's very careful in changing it from being the governor, the ruler, the statesman, who's the one who's giving your, your decision on how to act. And he, he replaces it with the word hachamim. In other words, Harambam over here, this is a radical departure. In other words, he's taking the philosophical conception of go to someone in order to change your approach to matters. And he likes that metaphor, but he departs from it by saying the Torah never told us that the philosophers, that the hachamim, that the kohanim, and so on and so forth are the ones who are going to be ruling. We may have had it with Moshe Rabbeinu. There was never this vision of the Torah that it was always going to be that way, that the prophets were going to be the rulers. As a matter of fact, look at the history. You could argue it's unideal, but at the end of the day, it's reality. They were never together. So it's just another instance, and I'm sure there are dozens, if not hundreds more, where Harambam will take the philosophical notion, but he'll either tweak it or he'll go against it entirely because of the Torah. So just to summarize what we did uh, today, and, and that is, I, I saw it as an opportunity to go back to many of the points that we discussed at greater length during the year and put them into one, uh, you know, one class which kind of puts them together. And that is, it's the question of philosophy versus Torah, or Torah versus philosophy. So where did Harambam end in that question? Well, so says Rabbi, of course he ended with Torah. It's not a question, which is correct. So let me rephrase it as a result. So where was it? What was in, in, in his in his um, lenses in approaching the text of the Torah and the messages of the Torah? Did he put on his philosophical lenses or did he put on his Torah-only lenses? So I'm inclined to think from these examples and maybe others as well that his lenses as he approached the Torah was they can be congruent. That's our first sources. That's where he's telling you all these statements don't get lost in them. The Torah is not telling you to go against philosophy. But at the end of the day, the lens that you approach the Torah with is the Torah approach. Philosophy can complement it. It can explain it but only if it really seems that way. So that's, that's the, the, this class, that would be the conclusion.